Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Gina. And I'm Nicole. And today we are dishing about heart health in honor of American Heart Month. But first, as always, let's do some catch up. Nicole, what's new? Uh, my best friend and her son, who is five months old, today, came to visit us. Uh, they got here Aww. like Friday afternoon and left yesterday afternoon, which was Saturday. Um, so that was really great. We really didn't do a whole lot. Um, we bought an expensive bottle of wine. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> Morning podcasting, Gina. Um, <laughs> whew. You know, in a perfect world, I'd still be sleeping right now. Um, it's 7.56 on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but not really. Reference. But not really. Um, <laughs> so we had a good bottle of wine and we ate a lot of food as usual, like good food. I mean, like kale salads and scallops and just oh. good stuff. Yeah. 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 That's um, yeah. Didn't do a whole lot. Um, but that was really good to see her work. Has and where been, does she live? She lives in Chicago. Okay. Yep. And it's cute. One of our friends from childhood sent me a message on Instagram and she was like, I love that you guys are still friends. She goes, y'all have been friends forever. I'm like, I know we really have. I mean, Kristen and I have been friends since we were two. Aw, and the best relationship. I know. It's just easy. I mean, she's yeah. you don't have to try. You don't you can be 100 percent who you are. And she knows all my dirty secrets. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just great. Um, So that was awesome. and. Uh, yeah. And then work has been crazy. So in the month of January, our referrals were up 75% from kind of our average pace of referrals. So everybody has just been working in overdrive and works. Is that pretty common with the start of the new year? No, because you would think you would think because of health, but I looked back and the previous four years were consistent at the number of referrals. And from that point, we were up 75%. So wow. I, I think I've shared, but like my job has really expanded from just outpatient to now inpatient. And now we're kind of doing, like, I, I'm calling it pre-inpatient and pre-outpatient, but we're involving ourselves in like the discharge process as well as um, like pre-surgery planning. So we're working to get people who have out of control blood sugars like on insulin in the weeks, days, even leading up to their um, either elective or um, non-elective surgeries to try and improve outcomes, which is really exciting, but it's a lot of work. And I have a few patients right now. I mean, just complex people. I mean, gestational diabetics that are early on and out of control. I have one that um, we're getting tested right now for a lot of latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, um, kind of like oh. a, a later onset of type one. So yeah, just looking at some really cool stuff. I've got some interesting caseload right now. Um, so so yeah, work's been good. And then I think the last little thing I, you know, I love hockey and I talk about hockey on every podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, so Shay has been doing learn to skate again because she wants to. And I asked her yesterday if she wanted to play hockey at some point. And she's like, no, I don't even move. That's what she said. That was her response about ice skating. And I just busted up laughing because she was so like, duh, like, why would I play hockey? I can't even skate. And it was it was adorable. And one of my friends had texted and who's very involved in the youth program at the at the hockey rink we play at. 
he was like, hey, there's a bunch of little guys, like girls, little people playing hockey uh, today in a tournament. Like, you should bring your kids by. I was like, OK. So I asked Shay if she wanted to go. And she's like, yeah. And we went and she was actually pretty into it. And it was cute because you could see a bunch of little girls um, like with their ponytails, like blasting out of their helmets. And, you know, just it was really cute. They were just adorable. Um, and she seemed pretty into it. I was surprised. I mean, you, I would not force my love of hockey onto my girls, but yeah. I would be thrilled if they were ever to show um, some sincere interest in it. So we'll see what happens. But she was she was pretty into it. So that was cool. Yeah, my dad would be ecstatic if Cameron or Paige played hockey. I would be he, ecstatic he was talking too. <laughs> about that before I even had Paige. Like, I'm going to buy her first pair of ice skates. And yeah, so he would he would love that. They, they my my dad and his wife take Paige once a month during the day and they try to bring her to the ice skating rink as much as possible. It's probably only been three times and she's still warming up to it. I think I've shared um her experiences on the ice rink in the past. She does not like it at all. Yeah. But, you know, I've never had her in last actual lessons. So I'm sure that would benefit her in many ways. I mean, Shay has done lessons since she was three and she has not yet yeah. yet advanced beyond like the yeah. <laughs> the very first class. And she's it's still hard. the slowest one in the class. It's the cutest. Yeah. She's just super cautious. That's her that's her nature. She's not going to go any faster than um, she feels she should if she's if mm-hmm. she's you know, if she's going to fall. So anyway, yeah. what's what's new in Columbus? Well, just this morning we went to get paid or Cameron was kind of talking in his, you know, talking in his bed. So we knew it was time for him to get a bed. We have his, his door shut most of the time and he can't open it. So we walked in and he was buck naked. <laughs> and just so in, in case people don't know, because I'm not sure what kind of updates I've given, he is potty trained and he has been since he was two and a half, but he's not nighttime potty trained. Because I think you mentioned this with Shay. I feel like he's a very, very hard or a deep sleeper. I don't think he would wake up to go to the bathroom on his own. And it's been proven because we tried um, not wearing a diaper or a pull up one night and he, you know, wet the bed major. I mean, it was all over the place on his stuffed animals, on his pillow. It was gross. So we decided we were just going to start kind of weaning him off of liquids before bed because he just loves to drink so much liquid before he goes to bed. And I'm talking, you know, like right after dinner, he'll, he'll ask for milk, he'll ask for water, he'll ask for this and that. And we try very hard just to give him a tiny little bit. But we, I hate to say no to liquids. I mean, if he's really thirsty, he should drink. Anyway, um, so we've tried to wean him off of liquids. I had a pull up on him last night. We walked into the room this morning and he was buck naked. And I guess he now says that his pull up is too itchy and hot. So he now <laughs> sleeps with no pajamas. It had been in the in the past, the past week or so, he kept his pull up on. But today he decided, or last night, he decided to take off his pull up. And of course, there was pee everywhere. I mean, he and he even said, my sheet is dry. I'm like, no, it's not dry. It is soaking wet. So he's laying in a pool of basically pee. It's not really a pool, but, you know, it's pretty much soaked through, but it is unpleasant. So we walked into a scent of, of urine and Paige walked in and she goes, oh, gross. Yeah. After you've been laying in, I don't know how they don't wake up because, you know, it doesn't happen in the three seconds before they get out of bed for the morning. Yeah. Well, I think I actually do think that both of my kids tend to always pee almost right before we woke woke them up or right before they woke up. That was, Mm. I think that's a common trait. I think a lot of kids do because I could always feel it very warm when I would wake him up and Paige too, when she did wear a pull up at night. 
Um, but yeah, I, I don't think the majority of that was from the morning. I do think he probably peed a couple times at night. And yeah, how would you not wake up? But we do have like a pad in between the sheet and his mattress. And I guess it kind of absorbs the pee. Mm-hmm. Almost like a diaper on on the bed. Right. So maybe he just doesn't feel it. So whatever. But more to come on that. We'll, we'll let you know how that goes. If he's going to keep taking him off, I guess. And of course, Nick does the laundry and he's just like, I have to do another load of laundry. Kill me now. Yeah. Poor guy. Or <laughs> and stripping a bed just in general. I know. Annoying. It's, thankfully, it's still a tiny, tiny little toddler bed that's the size of a crib. It's just there's no you know rails. Yeah. It's not his crib. It's a, actually a toddler bed that we bought separately, but it's the same size. It's not that big. It's not difficult to strip and then put back together. Anyway. Yeah. So another update, Paige, we started Paige in counseling. And when I say counseling, let me just kind of give an update here. So we did an episode on how Paige is a highly sensitive child. And I don't remember which episode that was. It was back in the beginning, but you guys can scroll through the episodes and see which one. I want to say it was one of our first 15. Mm -hmm. And basically, one of the traits that Paige has always had since being a very, very small, I would say even seven months, I, I noticed this. Or maybe even a year. That's when I put her in her first activity outside of daycare or home. And that was like a, what do they call it? Sporties for shorties class with other kids. She basically wouldn't go into the group without clinging on to me, which I think is very, very common in a one-year-old, right? But she mm-hmm. was, I would say, compared to all the other kids, the most clingy. Didn't really think much of it. I thought, okay, whatever. She's only one, not that big of a deal. But it never improved. Um, and she's now five, five and a half. And she's still, even when we go to birthday parties, she will not go into the birthday party without clinging on to me. Even if I say I'll come into the party with her or whatever they're doing, if it's ice skating or not too long ago, she went to a party where they were making pizza and she refused to go in because what she says to me, and I believe her, is that she's scared. So she has this intense fear of a lot of other kids being around. She does really well in school, so I have no... Uh, I have no concerns about her being in school. Her teachers have said nothing. But when I bring her to outside events, she always clings to me and it's not getting better. So I wanted her to, before she starts kindergarten again, she's doing kindergarten twice. So she's going to a completely different school next year. And I did that because she has an August birthday, just in case we've got new listeners. She's, she turned five, August 17th. So we started her in kindergarten for one year and we're going to repeat it next year. Uh, so she's going to a brand new school. I've got her signed up for a couple activities, uh, including gymnastics. She already does ballet, which is very hard for her to, um, detach from me every day at ballet every Saturday when we go. So I wanted her to learn some coping mechanisms for how to kind of give, get over her fear of other kids in big groups of kids or even small groups of kids or even a kid in general. I mean, truth be told, if we're out at a grocery store and someone, a child comes up and says hi to her. She will cower in fear. Mm. And it's so sad because she is so outgoing, vivacious, and it's not really her personality to be shy, but it takes her about 30 to 40 minutes to warm up at any situation. We'll go to a friend's house with tons of kids, and she's basically warmed up by the time we're about ready to leave. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you know, really the, the bottom line is I want to, I brought her to, to counseling just to kind of get her some coping mechanisms and... I hope it, I hope it works out. I'm, I don't know how long it will take, but I'll give it as much time as, as she needs. Okay. What else? Oh, I told you this already. So I had a goal of reading 10 books and Nicole, you'd be so proud of me. I think you kind of laughed a little bit when I said my goal is 10 books, probably because you're, you read what, like 30 books a year. How many do you think you read? 
like usually 24 is my goal, actually. It's not. Yeah, it's not crazy. Oh, that's that's to me. That's crazy. So I am already on my third book and it is only February 9th. That's impressive. Very proud of myself. Yes, I have. I have made time to read. And really, I think the most important thing is I'm choosing books that I'm actually enjoying. You know, I think in the past I would I would get a book and start reading it and not necessarily love it, but continue to read it just to finish the book. I don't do that anymore. (laughs) If I don't like it within the first, I would say, 50 pages, I'm done. Because there's been plenty of times when I've started a book and not necessarily loved it. But as I get into it, I start to like it. So I feel like if you're at page 50 and you're still not loving it, you just got to get rid of it. So I'm pretty proud of myself there. And then lastly, I'm not going to talk about the other one, but lastly, before this will come out and we'll have one more week left before we actually record our Q&A. So if you have questions for us, either personal or health related, nutrition related, please send them, send them our way because we're doing our either fourth or fifth Q&A episode uh, coming up after this comes out. We've already got some good ones, so I'm excited. Anything else? I don't think so. Should we go into our topic? Let's do it. All right. So first and foremost, I want to say that the information provided today is very general and not specific to you personally. Therefore, we encourage you to speak with your healthcare providers if you have questions about your own personal heart health. And obviously take our podcast as general guidelines, not as a prescription. February is American Heart Month, um, which I don't know if they decided to make February American Heart Month because it's Valentine's Day in February, but I've always wondered that. Or how long has February been American Heart Month? Who knows? We should look into that. Uh, Very few people can argue that heart health is one of the most dynamic areas of nutrition science. Today, we want to get to the bottom, or at least close to the bottom, of all the latest news and research related to keeping your ticker ticking. So why is it so important to care of your heart? According to the Centers for Disease Control, heart disease is the leading cause of death for both men and women. And one out of every four deaths each year is related to heart disease. I actually saw that statistic and and really did not realize that. Uh, So the American College of Cardiology lists the key risk factors for heart disease as high blood pressure, high blood cholesterol, premature atherosclerotic (laughs) cardiovascular (laughs) disease. We were having trouble saying that word earlier. Let's just say cardiovascular Um, disease from here forward. (laughs) Thank you. Sounds good. uh, Family history, smoking. Also, diabetes, physical inactivity, and excessive alcohol use. There comes alcohol again. It's, it's also a huge risk factor for cancer, as are a lot of these. The majority of these risk factors can be controlled by lifestyle changes. Today, we're going to focus on how your diet and lifestyle can help alleviate some of these risk factors. But we will also talk about and hopefully develop a better understanding of some of the more controversial views, views that have popped up over the last decade, which have gone against the thoughts that cholesterol, Fat and saturated fat are the main dietary demons when it comes to heart health. And Nicole, I'll let you take over from here. Okay. Um, I think one of the, you know, Gina and I work in pretty different industries of nutrition. Mm-hmm. And coming from more of the clinical side, I see the physicians uh, almost exclusively use um, a risk estimator. And it's a free online um, 10-year assessment of cardiovascular disease risk in those aged 40 and older. And what I did was I just put in my birthday to 40 with my same lab values. Um, uh, It asks if you're a smoker, um, some uh, some other things. But 
Um, it basically categorizes adults as either a low risk, which is less than 5% um, of mm -hmm. a 10-year risk for um, a cardiovascular event, borderline, which is 5 to less than 7.5%, intermediate, which is somewhere between 7.5 and less than 20 or high risk, which is greater than 20%. If you are curious uh, what that may look like for you, you do need your lipid panel uh, and and your blood pressure. But otherwise, it's just basic information. Most in health institutions now have like a MyChart or some type of a, an app or, you know, online system where you can log in and actually see all of that information. So you don't necessarily need a printed copy, but most people who are probably savvy enough to listen to a podcast probably have access to um, their chart in some way. So mm -hmm. check that out. I would encourage everyone to just look at that. And if nothing else, it really helps to identify kind of the main contributors to your risk uh, for a cardiovascular event. Um, and in the US, I think we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about lipids. Um, but hypertension actually accounts for more cardiovascular disease deaths than any other modifiable risk factor. Um, and and so that's that's just important to know. Um, and so yeah. when we talk sodium, also, I mean, alcohol, all of those things, inactivity, obesity uh, play, play a role. So when you're when we're talking hypertension, stage one hypertension is anything greater than or equal to 130 systolic um, or greater than or equal to 80 diastolic. Uh, with 46% yeah. of Americans falling into one of the, that stage one or higher hypertensive state. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I, I was just going to say, if you ever forget which one is diastolic versus systolic, and I still tell myself this, the diastolic is down or at the bottom. So D for down. And that's oh. the, do you, you don't think about that? Or you probably are just so used to seeing those numbers. I don't think about hypertension that much because I don't work in the clinic. Um, so other than myself and my husband, I don't really think about blood pressure. Yeah. That's how I remember that. I wanted to say real quick, it's, I'm glad that you said that because I think so many of us are focused on cholesterol as a risk factor, like you just said, for, for heart disease. And, you know, both my husband and I have, I would say, high cholesterol according to what the recommendation is. So it's a little bit above 200, right? Mm -hmm. But both of us have really good blood pressure, blood pressure numbers. And I'm always just really, really thankful for that because I do know how important it is. I would say even more important to have your blood pressure under control versus your cholesterol. But yeah. So you I can always roto-rooter those uh, arteries later. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you can't really do much about your blood pressure once it's high, other than getting rid of sodium, losing some weight. I mean, yeah, you can roto-rooter your arteries. That's I always it. think of so the lipids as, and that's basically what atherosclerotic means is it's it's plaque promoting, if you will. So think yes. of lipids in your blood as being sticky. And when it plaque is really just damage. And so when mm -hmm. there's damage to the insides of your arteries, veins, whatever, I mean, anywhere in your body that blood goes, um, when there's that buildup of plaque um, and your lipids are high, it can it promotes that that buildup, which creates yeah. blockage. Right. And then when your blood pressure is too high, think about of just pressure inside of all of those spaces and eventually the pressure can build up to the point where you're really looking at risk of, you know, a piece or a clot coming off that, you know, a piece of that plaque breaking off. And, you know, if it were to go to the brain or make its way towards that direction, you know, we're talking stroke or in the heart, a heart attack. And I think that's super basic, but I think a lot of people don't really realize 
it, maybe a visual, if you will. I, you know, it's like when I'm talking to patients about blood sugar, it's like, think about maybe like pure maple syrup in your blood. You know, that's not what we want. Um, right. And then, you know, when you're, you've got the cap that goes on and it's all crusty and we're talking about like um, neuropathy, it, you know, sometimes those visuals and, and it's a, a way oversimplified, but it can really help to just have those points stick and just a, a bit of a visual. Yeah, um, I think that's good. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, okay. So for every 20 points systolic or 10 points diastolic, we, each of those either, or is associated with a doubling in the risk of death from stroke, heart disease, or vascular disease. Takeaway message there is you're not moving mountains or you are moving mountains in the wrong way with blood pressure and tight control is important. And one note on tobacco use, it is, um, Tobacco use is the leading uh, preventable cause of preventable cause of disease, disability, and death in the U.S. And that would include heart disease. Wanted to make a note here about vaping, however, because this is a newer class of tobacco product, and what it does is it emits aerosol-containing fine and ultra-fine particles, nicotine, and toxic gases that can increase mm. the risk of cardiovascular and pulmonary diseases. And I think the there's just so many misconceptions about these. I, I, I know my brother at one point was vaping. I He still maybe, I don't really want to know. And he'd be like, it's strawberries. I'm like, it is not strawberries. Um, but they, they're they marketed to be very benign. And that's just simply not the case. And the risk, the kind of what we know about vaping, it's still so early in um, in knowing kind of the the long-term effects, but arrhythmias and hypertension with e-cigarette use have been reported. And then chronic use is associated with pertinent increased in increases in oxidative stress and vasoconstriction of blood vessels. So oxidative stress, meaning free radical production. I think of cancer. I don't know about you. Yeah. I think of cancer and heart disease, really mm-hmm. any chronic disease. Ox- yeah. Oxidative stress can be associated with pretty much any chronic disease that you name. Yeah, bad. it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> you don't want it. We don't want it. Um, I mean, a little bit is good. You need to have a little bit. And that's just how the body works. But, you know, too much, not good. Too much. Yeah. So that does that take us to our first kind of yeah. question here? Sure. So our discussion points today. Well, first, I want to say, believe it or not, when I was in school for dietetics, I really, really thought that I was going to go into heart health and be working with people who had heart disease or who were trying to prevent it. I wanted to work in a heart health clinic uh, or a cardiac, you know, rehab clinic of some sort. I was very, very much into heart health because I have it so much in my family and I was just very interested in it. It's funny. I no, I currently do nothing with related related to heart disease. In fact, the only reason I read up on it and, and kind of try to keep myself uh, just up on all the research is because for my own good and for my family's good and because I think it's important to know this kind of stuff as a dietitian. Um, but I really don't work in heart health at all. So, which is funny since I, that was what I wanted to do when I became a dietitian. All right, Nicole. So what does your personal family history look like? Um, my paternal grandfather died of heart disease. My paternal grandmother had um, TIAs, also called, um, it stands for transient ischemic attacks or more commonly known as like mini strokes. And she had those, I want to say starting in her 40s. Oh, wow. um, my mom, I always joke because we're going to talk about our lipids in a bit. My mom is and I might have mentioned it on the podcast before. She's super fit. Um, she's like half of my size, uh, exercises, eats well, 
you know, there, she has no other risk factors, but her cholesterol has always been high. Mm-hmm. I mean, for years, decades, it's been high. So I always joke that my hyperlipidemia comes from both my parents, but my mom especially. And then my dad has um, hypertension and hyperlipidemia. Uh, pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty out of control for for both. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, does your mom's family have any uh, heart disease? Well, so my mom's mom died when she was seven and we believe it was cancer. Yeah. So we don't know a ton about her. And then my maternal grandfather, we we think he died more from it might have been something cardiac related, but I think it was Alzheimer's, dementia. Okay, I don't think we really know. Okay. Same with my maternal grandmother, actually. We, she kind of had a dementia that kind of just turned into, we're not even really sure what happened, but okay. So, that, you know, it's such a sad process. I think after, it's yeah. almost relief for everyone um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's, it's kind of like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. So I actually don't know. I just know more okay. about, yeah, my dad's side. Yeah. And I would actually agree with that. I know much more about my dad's side of the family. <laughs> it's funny. I was at a family reunion for my mom's side of the family uh, a few months ago. And I, she has six brothers and sisters and she's one of the youngest. And actually there was about a 15 year gap between my, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, first four kids, I'm sorry, first three kids. And then their last four kids. My mom, of course, was in the, the second grouping of the younger kids. And so I kind of just started asking them questions. This is when I found out my A1C was 5.6. And I kind of freaked out a little bit. Like, why do I have, I only know of one person in my family who has diabetes. Maybe I should ask my mom's side of the family about their diabetes. So I did. And I got some good answers. But anyway, so my dad's <laughs> side of the family is, I would say, riddled with heart disease. My um, father, my dad went on a statin early in his 40s. I did ask him this recently. He also has, I think, I want to say three stents currently. So he does have heart disease. Also, he has two sisters who are on cholesterol medicine as well. One of whom also has type 2 diabetes. I'm not sure if the other one does. Uh, I don't think she does. And neither does my dad. But the one does have type 2. And I'm very much built like her. And I'm, I'm like her in a lot of ways. So, uh, you know. Uh, let's see. My paternal uh, grandpa died from heart disease. So my dad's dad died from heart disease. He had a stroke that killed him at age 61. Really sad story there. It happened on Christmas Eve. Ugh, oh, it was terrible. Wow. I was very, very young, but uh, let's see. Okay. So diabetes, going back to the the family reunion that I went to. So I kind of started asking my mom's, my mom said, no, no one in my family has diabetes. Well, she had no clue. She does not have diabetes. But as I started asking her siblings, uh, I would say the vast majority of them actually do have diabetes. Little did she know. And actually, it turns out so did my grandpa. So my mom's dad. So lots of diabetes in the family. And yes, lots of heart disease in my family. All right. So here's a good one, uh, Nicole. I know we were in school at very similar times. I realize you're a little bit younger than me. But what were the (laughs) diet and lifestyle recommendations when you were in school versus what they are now? Yeah. I read your answer and I, I mean, I yeah. basically agree. Okay. So I didn't really answer it. Yeah. Do, do you want me to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought so, you no, did so good. I just skipped by that question. No, it's, go for it's it. It's totally Gina. fine. I didn't really expect you to write an answer as well. Cause I mean, obviously it's going to be the same thing unless you had anything to add, which if you don't, that's totally fine. So I'll go ahead. So basically I, I'm going by what the American Heart Association has said and what the dietary guidelines for America's have, Americans have said. 
I would say in general, the American Heart Association has kind of remained remained steadfast in their recommendations since we were in school. They haven't really changed much from the basic recommendations of obviously not smoking, being physically active, uh, reducing your saturated fat intake. Their recommendation is 5 to 7% of our daily calories coming from saturated fat or less. And to put that into perspective, that's about 15 grams of saturated fat on a 2,000 calorie diet, which is about two tablespoons of butter or three ounces of cheese. I will say I get way more than that. It's like nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Might as well just take saturated fat out of your diet completely. And then the dietary guidelines for Americans are a little bit less conservative than the American Heart Association. And they always have been. Mm -hmm. And they say about 10% of your saturated fat should come from, or no more than 10% should come from saturated fat. Anyway, something that has changed though dramatically since when we were in school, Nicole, is the focus on cholesterol from foods. Yes, I know when we were in school, they harped a lot on not getting too much cholesterol from, you know, from the diet. So reducing your cholesterol to no more than 300 milligrams, which is about one or two eggs a day or egg yolks specifically. Uh, Yeah, so that was the big push. But now research has shown that actually getting cholesterol from your diet really doesn't have an impact on your cholesterol, your actually blood lipid cholesterol, which I think is good. So of course, the main focus is still on saturated fat, but I am seeing in the research and I think what we're going to see in the new dietary guidelines that come out in 2020 is that there's going to be even less focus on reducing saturated fat and more focus now instead, which I love this, on including more polyunsaturated fats, specifically the omega-3s. So rather than saying, don't get too much saturated fat, they're focusing on the positive, which is actually just add more polyunsaturated fats into your diet. And I think in the past, what happened was we kind of got this message to reduce cholesterol, reduce saturated fat. And so we took those out of our diets and replaced it with um, carbohydrates. Yep. And we're seeing now that we're not really supposed to do that. If we're going to reduce our saturated fats, we need to replace them still with fat, but with a different type of fat. And that's the polyunsaturated, specifically omega-3 fats that are found in nuts, seeds, fish, walnuts, etc. Uh, I would also add, and I, I don't know about what, what you think about this, Nicole, but I feel like when we were in school, I didn't really hear much about added sugars. And now there's a big push for reducing our added sugars. And that's probably because it is so rampant in our food supply. It used to be just that, you know, the main source of added sugars was dessert. Now you pick up any food and almost all foods have some amount of added sugar, whether it's from maple syrup or table sugar or honey, whatever it is. It's so much more in our food supply now than it ever was before. And research is showing that too much added sugar isn't good for our heart or really good for any part of our body. So there's now specific recommendations to reduce that. And again, I want to, oh yeah. So the American Heart Association, I don't think there was a recommendation for this when we were in school. I could be wrong. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't remember. But now the recommendation is no more than 24 grams for women and no more than 36 grams of added sugar for men. And again, to put that into perspective, about one tablespoon of maple syrup is about 13 grams of sugar. 
So again, not that much, (laughs) but if you look at what the dietary guideline says, they suggest no more than 10% of your calories should come from added sugar, which is about 48 grams on a 2000 calorie diet, which is a little bit more lenient. I think more realistic. I was going to read this later in the podcast, but this is uh, this resource, which is linked in the show notes is the 2019 American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association guidelines on the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. And I mentioned the title because we are talking about primary prevention here. We're not talking about individuals who have had a cardiovascular event. But interestingly, in the nutrition section, and I'll just read it verbatim, is in the order here, it's like a nutrition label. It's interesting. It says dietary patterns associated with cardiovascular disease mortality include, number one, sugar. And then the second, low-calorie sweeteners. And I don't know the mechanism of action for that, but that's extremely interesting. Goes on to say high carbohydrate diets, low carbohydrate diets, refined grains, then trans fat, saturated fat, sodium, red meat, and processed meats. Wait, is this in order of importance, did you say? Well, I don't know, but I find it very- Trans fat? I I know. I don't. (laughs) Right. But isn't that an interesting list in general? It is, especially because, and, I, and I'm sure there's more details, but you say low carbohydrate and high carbohydrate. I'm yep. wondering if they mean like a very low carbohydrate diet. I'm guessing, One that is yeah. super high in saturated fat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, like a, like a keto or, yeah. or I guess I should say Atkins diet. Yeah, I'm thinking like keto Atkins. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. keto done wrong or right. Um, Correct. <laughs> um, anyway, I just thought that that was worth mentioning. And that is that is verbatim. And these are, again, 2019 uh, kind of position statement on primary prevention from kind of these two huge bodies in, in, heart, in heart health. So take that for what it's worth. Oh, geez. Okay. So, so sugar. And I, and not a surprise, not a surprise at all. But, but just think, supporting your 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 theory, your belief, and I believe it to be factual as well. So obviously it's true. Um, yeah. If both of us agree, yeah, sugar is is going to take front stage here. Yeah, uh, that just reminded me of. Oh, and I think I'm glad that you read that because you do mention trans fat, and I we don't really mention that. We didn't talk about that when it comes to um, kind of changes from when we were in school to now. I would say. We didn't talk much about trans fat when I was in school, probably because there still wasn't that much research out there about it, but it was just kind of starting to come out that trans fat is pretty much the devil <laughs> and you just want to completely avoid it. Now, I will say it's impossible to completely avoid, especially if you are not vegetarian, because there is natural trans fat out there that does not have the same cardiovascular risk factors as, or cardiovascular, it doesn't have the same effects on your heart as uh, actually made in the lab trans mm-hmm. fats. Mm-hmm. So there's natural trans fats in meats, for example, and not the same thing as, you know, the partially hydrogenated oils that are made in a lab. Just keep that in mind. So if you see, you know, a, a thing of meat, especially I would say grass fed beef, I feel like I see it more on those labels. It'll say, you know, one or two grams of trans fat. Don't be concerned about that. Would you agree with that, Nicole? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm going to let you kind of, again, Nicole, I feel like you know more about lab values and what the recommendations are. I will say I've read a couple really good books and I do try to keep up on, on heart health and lab information as much as possible, but I'll kind of let you take the lead on this one. What are the recommendations (laughs) for lipid panel numbers and what are your thoughts on those recommendations? So not all bodies agree here. Um, I glanced <laughs> at, again, my lipid panel and the reference ranges that were given there were the um, NIH, which is the Nath- National Institute of Health, 
And it says that a desirable total cholesterol, which we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on because it's really just an equation of the rest. Desirable is under 200, borderline high 200 to 239, and then high would be considered greater than or equal to 240. Again, I don't put a whole lot of value in the total cholesterol number. Me the Um, Triglycerides is probably definitely one that I look at the most, especially working in the field of diabetes. Uh, But Mm -hmm. under 150 is acceptable. And triglyceride is really a fancy word for fat. Um, Mm -hmm. if you, that's, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, borderline (laughs) high would be 150 to 199. Um, and then high would be in that 200 to 499 range. And then high would be greater than or equal to 500. I think that range is crazy. I mean, if I see triglycerides above 500, I'm not, or even if I see triglycerides in in the 300s, I'm not going, Oh, those are a little high. I mean, like those are high. No. <laughs> um, so I think those are interesting. I have seen triglycerides just for ref- in the like 7,000 plus category though. <gasps> Isn't yeah. that uh, pancreatitis? <laughs> There's something going on there, right? If it, if it hadn't happened yet, it was knocking on the door for sure. Oh my I'm like, what does that vial of blood look like? Does it just oh completely God. separate like salad dressing? Um <laughs> I don't know. It's but triglycerides can go pretty darn high. The nice thing is they are very responsive to diet changes, um, yeah. specifically alcohol reduction, yeah. uh, carbohydrate restriction, or okay, I'll, I'll air quotes around the restriction there, and uh, right. simple sugars for sure, uh, decreasing yep. those. Anything else and weight loss if needed, and an overall like if you're eating too many calories, reduce your energy intake. Um, yeah. That about does it for. Triglycerides, right? And omega-3 fatty acids. If it's not contraindicated, two grams or more of a good source of omega-3 fatty acids is is a therapeutic dose um, for triglyceride lowering. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, HDL cholesterol, or I, you have your little way of remembering diastolic and systolic. I always teach um, high density lipoproteins as high. You want high. Um, yeah. The H, or happy. High. Happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the the losers, the LDL, you want low. Um, I love that. HDL is a tricky one because it's typically either genetic or related to your activity level. So Mm -hmm. if you want to get your HDL up, very few ways to do that diet wise. There are some that can move the needle a bit, but you're typically looking at ramping up that exercise. So low would be anything under 40, 40 to 60 is considered acceptable. And then greater than or equal to 60 is optimal. Um, for this one, Women, you we do want, I think the recommendation is from the AHA is greater than 55 for women, I mean, for men, and then greater than 45 for women. And the reason being um, men's risk of cardiovascular disease is higher. Um, so okay. they do separate oh. out men and women. I always thought for men, the recommendation actually was actually lower. Okay, I guess I'm wrong. Oh. I don't know. It's fine. And, oh, and I want to add- question myself here. <laughs> no, I can look I'm it up quickly. Sure, but uh, Okay. I also want to add that there's, like you said, exercise is the number one way to get your HDL mm-hmm. higher. I would also say, and I have read this numerous places, is drinking alcohol. It's like the one, mm. it's the one lab where if you, and again, it, obviously modest amounts, you know, one drink a day for women, two for men, max, or else you're going to have the, you know, a negative response. But you, by adding a glass of wine or whatever you drink, one per night that would increase your HDL as well. I feel like I've read that many places, but obviously that doesn't mean if you have low HDL and you don't drink, you should start drinking to get it up. That's not the idea here, but uh, it's just another way that you could potentially increase it if you would 
like, or if you already drink, but maybe you want to cut down your alcohol, you know, cutting it down to only one or two for men um, might actually help increase your HDL. Music to my ears. Um, And probably so you can justify your drinking. Um, (laughs) Totally kidding. Totally kidding. Um, And then LDL, I'm sorry. So less than 100 is optimal. And you had a note in here, Gina, for... Those who have had a previous cardiovascular event or diabetics, the recommendation is 70 or less. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. That is really hard. So well, that'll, that'll, that's a nice segue into statins, um, yeah. which we'll talk about in a minute. 100 to 129 is near optimal. 130 to 159 borderline high. 160 to 189 is considered high. And then a greater than 190 is considered very high. Um, yeah. Okay. What do you think? Right. Yeah, I, I think that's great. That's that's good information. I just from some of the books that I've read that we put in our show notes, I really do believe that over the next decade, we're going to see more focus on the HDL or high density. You want the number high uh, to triglyceride ratio. Or wait, maybe it's the opposite. It might be triglyceride to HDL. But anyway, I think there's going to be more focus on your HDL and your triglycerides as the labs to really look at. And I also think there's going to be more focus on not just looking at your LDL looking at the particle size for your LDL. And I'm actually going to be getting that test soon because my LDL is a little bit high. It's, I think, according to what you have here, it is in the near, no, it's actually in the borderline high because I think I'm, I was 44, but I'm really not concerned about it. But just to be sure, I'm actually getting my LDL particle size tested. You want your LDL particles to be large and buoyant because they're less easily oxidized than if they're really, really small and dense. So I'm really curious to get that lab back and, and see what mine are like. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what about your numbers, Nicole? What are they and what did your doctor say about them considering oh, your you know, sorry, family history? One more note on, on, on these numbers. I, mm-hmm. the, I don't, don't always trust the lab. When you, when you get a print off or you're looking uh, at your lab results, the reference ranges are not always good. For example, like our lab currently for glucose has normal up to 109 and it has LDL up to 130 as being normal. But if your cholesterol is falling between 100 and 129, it's not optimal. It's near optimal. You know, I I think it's just one of those things where at a glance it may look okay, but always do a deeper dive with your labs. Uh, Yeah. Interesting. Mine mine have the same uh, recommendations as you have listed here. Yeah, look at the look at the glucose one. I'd be interested. Hmm, okay, like if if it goes up to one hundred and nine, like every every range is a bit different. So I'm still trying to look at men versus women on the HDL too. I I'm okay, not finding it go, anymore. While uh, you're looking, uh, I will say what my numbers are. Okay. My doctor says so. Like I've kind of alluded to a couple times, my cholesterol on my last lipid panel was around two hundred and thirty. So according to the recommendations, that is a little bit high. It's borderline high. My LDL is 144, which apparently is also borderline high. I would say because of my cholesterol numbers and my family history and my A1C that was 5.6, which is basically 0.1 below prediabetes, which by the way, mm-hmm. I just had retested and it was only five. That's what happens when you stop eating Grater's ice cream in bed before you go to bed, <laughs> I guess. so funny. <laughs> um, I will say keep keeping my family history in mind, I do sometimes worry about those numbers. However, that's exactly why I'm going to get my LDL uh, density tested because I really want to see if I should be concerned. But on the bright side, like I said, what I've been reading is it's it's going to become, I think, more important to focus on triglycerides 
and HDL for heart health. And my triglycerides are around 60, which is, I think, pretty amazing. And my HDL wavers anywhere between 60 and 70. My doctor says, of course, I talked to a nurse on the phone right when I got my labs back and she said something about putting me on a statin. And I said, hell no, that's not going to happen. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so I talked to an actual cardiologist. I made an appointment with one. And this was after my uh, Synthroid heart beating out of my chest scare. And I talked to him about my cholesterol numbers. And he said that they would never consider a statin until I have more risk factors or I have a cardiac event. But specifically, if I take a coronary calcium test and it comes back, within the range of, um, I think it's anything over five or 10, which might warrant me going on a statin. And that's basically a measure of the calcium buildup in your arteries. So he says they don't do that until age 40. So when I'm 40, I'm definitely going to get one of those. Nick just had it and his look great, which I'm very, very happy about because his cholesterol is also a little bit high, but they won't put him on a statin because his coronary calcium test came back looking really, really good. What about you? One question on the coronary calcium. It is done by mm -hmm. CT, correct? I don't know. <laughs> Good question. I don't know. I, well, I did a bunch I think of research, so. but that's an expensive test. Is it? Well, mm -hmm. I don't know. We haven't gotten the bill yet for that, so. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll see. <laughs> he just had it done not too long ago. <laughs> Drinks on me at a Great Wolf Lodge. Um, <laughs> Thank God. We're glad. <laughs> um, okay. What are, what are my labs? My, we actually have pretty similar um, numbers. Yeah, I, I noticed say. that. My LDL is 147. My HDL is the same as yours, 61. Your, mm -hmm. Right? Yours was 61? 61. My last one was 61. Yep. Yeah. Um, triglycerides, which this is the highest my triglycerides have ever been, was 134, which is still in the optimal range. I will say I had my labs done within the week. I think it was like four days after we got back from a week-long trip at an all-inclusive in Mexico. So <laughs> yep, that do was it. probably not the best time to uh, have my labs done. So I, th I think these might be uh, falsely a little bit elevated. And then the total was 235. Okay. Yeah. All right. So what are your thoughts on statins, Nicole? And <laughs> do you think they work? And wait, did you add this work by preventing the liver? Oh, maybe I. Oh, yeah. Just I wanted to. <laughs> talk about like basically what they do um, in, okay. in case you don't know. I mean, statins in the medical world are, I mean, everybody knows what a statin is, but they work to lower cholesterol in the body by reducing the liver's ability to make cholesterol. So, I mean, cholesterol is a natural hormone in the body and your body produces it in addition to, um, you know, obviously it, it's produced from what you eat. Um, so th by doing this, it allows the liver to accept more cholesterol from, from the blood and it drives down those cholesterol levels in your body. And then statins specifically target LDL cholesterol and can lower it by more than 50%. Um, they also work to prevent heart attacks and strokes by keeping plaques. So again, that buildup from rupturing or breaking apart and forming mm -hmm. clots that can move to the heart of the brain, like we said earlier. Um, they also can help lower triglycerides and slightly boost HDL. But by and large, statins are designed to target those LDL um, LDL numbers. All right, how do I feel about them? Mm -hmm. I'm probably a slightly bigger fan than you, again, because of the industry <laughs> that I work in. I mean, all of my patients, pretty much, if they're over the age of 40, are on a statin. Um, I always say they are to the cardiac world what metformin is to the diabetes world. They yeah. are very well researched. I will say that. Um, and they are regarded very high, highly for their efficacy. Again, targeting that LDL um, and use in primary prevention, though. Here, here's kind of where we get in. 
Um, it is controversial and I err on the side of lifestyle modification through and through. So like you, am I thrilled about my LDL in the 140s? Not at all. But am I willing to at 34 <laughs> even consider the use of a statin? Heck no. Um this is interesting though, because I think it's hard to talk about pharmaceuticals without talking about industry and marketing and money. Um, so use in 50-year-olds eligible, air quotes, eligible for statins rose from 8% in 1987 to 61% under the 2016 guidelines. Um, and statins in the US are a $1 trillion business that independent analysis is not available for. And what that's saying is people who are on statins typically have other comorbidities going on. There are other risk factors for heart disease. There is nobody who only has high LDL cholesterol and is perfectly healthy otherwise. So it's really hard to say what is that independent analysis for the, the use of a statin. And, you know, so I think it's one of those where you know, like you were talking about the calcium test, other, this is a conversation um, and they call it a, a clinical assessment um, in all of the kind of white paper documents on, on the use of statins. But it really comes down to the trust in your provider, understanding mm-hmm. family history, what are your labs, what what are your abilities to take your lifestyle modifications further and all of that type of stuff. So um, I, I have some questions, but, you know, for people with comorbid conditions, statins are often the the right way to go. I, I'll I mean that's an opinion I guess, but um in, in the cardiac world and the diabetes world they are they are highly regarded for a good reason. I feel. Yeah, and I would agree with you. I, I think that for me, I know for a while there they were saying something like, and I think I told you this. Oh, statins are so great; they should just be in the water. You know, <laughs> yeah. I do not agree with that at all. I feel like there's definitely a time and a place for a statin. My dad's on one, so are my aunts. My dad has heart disease. He needs to be on one. He's had three cents put in. He needs to be on one or like my doctor told him he might die. We don't want that. So I think there's a time and a place. I do think if you start too early that the risks outweigh the benefits. I actually put a link to a book that I just read that has a whole chapter on why it is not good to start a statin unless you really, really need one. Uh, you know, they do increase type two diabetes um, in, in people who- Ever so slightly. I did read about that. Okay. It's like okay. very, very slight. Okay. And they and that's another thing is they the articles this was in the 2019 but they said the people who tend to de- develop type 2 diabetes it, it was something like they develop it I think it was like five their diagnosis comes 5 weeks earlier than it would have without the statin on board. Like they they were okay, already on you- the pre-diabetes train, right? Sure. <laughs> so um I so think that's another another reason why I wouldn't want to start one, you know? Yeah. It, yep. It's it just one of those things that I that I consider. It also cause sleep disturbances, GI upset, muscle aches. Obviously, every medication has some type of a, um, you know, side effects that are negative. And I, I think this one has a lot, especially in specific people. Not everyone has those side effects, but I do hear about these side effects. And so unless you really need to be on one, like any medication, I think just do your research and, and really find out whether it's warranted for you personally, just like mm-hmm. what you said. Yep. All right. So what are some other labs uh, that you think might be important other than the ones that we've already talked about? And what I have here, we've already talked about this, and maybe this is a, a question we can kind of skip, but we've talked about blood pressure. What about resting heart rate? Do you think that's important? I do. It's, yeah. I was getting off the Peloton yesterday and the girls were asking what my heart rate monitor was for. And I was trying to explain it a little bit. Um, absolutely. And yeah. that's a great one to measure because 
you know, the little pulse ox thingy they put on your finger as soon as you, you're being triage at any medical appointment, basically. Like that's an easy uh-huh. one to monitor. Exactly. I mean, you, you get that a- value right along with your blood pressure. Does your Fitbit take your um, it does. heart rate? Mm-hmm. It does. Okay. Yeah. Because so does mine. And it's been really good to look at it. Actually, since I've started the Synthroid, my heart rate was 49 before I started the Synthroid. Wow. 49. Wow. Which I am very active, but that is, that's like um, high athlete performance level, um, professional athlete performance. Um, what am I trying to say? That's like a professional athlete's uh, heart rate. It's What is ridiculous. a good one? I don't even know. Mine is so 50. sixty to one hundred is is considered healthy. Okay, fifty eight is my is my resting heart rate. According that's to mine bed. as well. So since starting the Synthroid, mine's fifty eight. Okay, it has gone up ten because <clears throat> one of the signs of low thyroid is low heart rate. Here, I thought I was just super healthy and fit, <laughs> which I am. You but are. Yeah, it has gone up now to maybe a more realistic level, which is fifty eight. So yeah, I do think it's important too. A one C is incredibly important as well making sure that you're, you know, kind of monitoring your A1C. So if you need to modify your diet for diabetes or prevent diabetes, you can. Uh, I Again, I think that it's going to become more and more important as you age to look at your LDL particle size to see if they're small and dense or better, large and buoyant. I also think some a, a lab that I think more people are going to start asking for is their C-reactive protein, which mm-hmm. is basically a measure of your whole body inflammation which I would love to get that test. I feel like they only insurance only covers it at, after a certain age, probably like most tests. So maybe 45 or 50, I'm not quite sure. And then of course, like I said before, the coronary calcium score, I think is super important, which you can get after age 40. And just to put, um, just so you know what some normal levels there are, you want to have anything between uh, one or I should say zero and 10 in order to, that basically shows minimal evidence of uh, coronary coronary calcium buildup. That's what you want. But I don't know much about that beyond that. So anything after that, if you have high LDL and other risk factors, that's where maybe a satin might come in, according to my cardiologist. I also think in the future that more doctors are going to be looking at triglyceride to HDL ratio. I did put a study in the show notes, as well as a link to the book that I read recently that talks about this, you want to aim for less than three or closer to one. And I, I really do think that's going to be <clears throat> on more doctors' radar in the future. Anything you want to add to that? I don't think so. Okay. All right. So just to kind of recap or uh, wrap up this episode, Nicole, in your professional opinion, what are the best overall current recommendations for improving or maintaining heart health? Uh, I, I mean, I have to go with trans fat number one, um, just because Mm it, like you said, it's, it's not prevalent in foods naturally. It, it does exist, but if we, if you can limit the added trans fats from processing, that's huge. Um, maybe even just more meals home versus away, you can cut down on trans fat a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, I think sugar just starting to assess because chances are you probably eat more sugar than the recommendations. Just, I mean, most people probably do. And mm-hmm. so assessing how much sugar is coming in and, and how can you reduce that? Um, and considering, I call it the P's and Q's, and I stole that from a dietitian I work with, but the the portions and the quality of carbohydrates. Um, so not necessarily, you know, just like the the standard, you know, kind of this position statement said, it's kind of avoiding the highs and the lows, but being more moderate. Um, but also looking at the quality uh, of those carbohydrates. I think that's going to be really 
I think that's going to continue to shine through. Yeah. Yeah. About you? I, w- I would agree with you. You know, again, going back to my family history of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, I think for someone like me, I hate to say this, but I really truly believe that someone like me needs to be on a moderate carbohydrate diet. Mm-hmm. I think that my body responds to <clears throat> carbohydrates a little bit differently. I am not in any way advocating a low carbohydrate diet, but for me, I am again, I'm not going back to counting carbs or anything, but I think for me, a range anywhere between 30 and 40% of my carbs coming from, uh, from uh, carbohydrates. I've been reading a lot. Again, I put those books in the show notes. The one that I just read is Cholesterol Clarity by Jimmy Moore, but I also read Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Tobbs. If you want to read anything, I would actually recommend more so The Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Tobbs. It was just really eye-opening. And I think, again, for someone like me who has not only heart disease, but also diabetes in my family, watching my carbohydrates more than maybe somebody else. Also, again, I think not smoking, super, super important. I'm, I don't know if I've ever said this, but you know, Nick used nicotine since age 14. I'm so thankful he finally stopped using, and it's not just about smoking. He actually used the dip. He was mm-hmm. a tobacco in the mouth type person. Oh, so gross. I can't even say it out loud. <laughs> also detrimental to your health, um, you know, obviously linked to heart disease and cancer, so many other things. Being active at least 30 minutes a day, reducing alcohol if you drink more than one for women or two for men. I know that's hard to say, but it's true. And then I'm going to say lastly, and I would argue almost most importantly, as far as food is concerned, is eating your five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables on most days. If you have a day when you're not eating five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables, it's not going to kill you. It's fine. If you do it on most days, that's what you want. Anything else? No, I think that's good. Did you talk about your de-stress things in there? I did not. I didn't talk about de-stressing. You know, and we didn't really talk about this because I guess we focused more on on diet. But I think something that really kind of gets forgotten a lot when it comes to heart health or just health in general is de-stressing and finding ways to tone, you know, keep your, your stress at bay. And whenever anyone asks me what I do to de-stress, I you know, there was a time when I thought to myself, like, I can't even think of one thing that I do to de-stress. So ask yourself that question right now. What do you do to stress? And if you can't think of anything or you can only think of one thing, maybe try to come up with something else and, and start doing it because I have made just an effort to increase my arsenal of things that I can do to de-stress. And I really think it's been helpful for me. I'm not saying I'm not stressed. By any means, especially this week before my period, I don't know what it is, but I am just high anxiety all the time. Uh, but, you know, for me doing puzzles, reading a book, I am very thankful that I finally got back into reading for pleasure again. That is so great for me. Watching a TV show. I know that sounds lame. Taking a long shower, going for a long run. So kind of ask yourself, what do I do to de-stress and how often do I do it? Because Reducing stress, I would say, is key to keeping your heart healthy. Yep. That's all I've got. Absolutely. All right. What are some mom wins for you or favorite new products or recipes, Nicole? I have a product, Gina. Okay. It's another Aldi find and it is the Simply Nature Coconut Caco uh, Superfoods Granola. And what I love about it, 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 a half cup serving is 140 calories, six grams of fat, uh, 20 grams of carb. 35 milligrams of sodium, three grams of fiber, eight grams of sugar, 
and three grams of protein. Oh, so sounds lovely. it's also gluten free and it tastes awesome. So I had okay. a handful as I was running up the stairs this morning to podcast and Shay was like gobbling it down. She loved it. <laughs> what about you? Oh, good. So they like it. I just want to say, so, you know, going back to, it's not a great idea to kind of force your kids to take a bite of something. I don't necessarily force my kids to try something, but I do ask them once. Like, for example, I made kale chips the other day. Simply, I bought a bag of already chopped and washed kale, put it out on a pan, sprayed a little bit of oil on top, salt, pepper, done. Put it in the oven, maybe 425 for 15 minutes. Paige looked at them and said, oh, those look good. And, or no, I'm sorry. She looked at them and said, those look disgusting. That's what it was. <laughs> and of course, because they don't necessarily look palatable, but anyway. So I said, why don't you just give it a try? She said, no. I'm like, all right, that's fine. You don't have to give it a try. Well, I right when I turned around, you know, when you're not watching them, they tend to try it. At least my kids do. As long as you're not watching, they'll try it. So she took a bite and she actually tried it. And she goes, mm, that's pretty good. And then I was kind of shocked to be quite honest. She took another bite and said she thought it was disgusting. So, you know, the moral of the story is they're not going to love everything. They might like it at first and then not like it. They might like, like it one day and then hate it the next day. It's totally normal. But she tried the kale chip. I'm very proud of her for doing that. And I appreciated it. Uh, and, and I think that they're delicious. Kale chips are probably my new favorite snack. Aside from the fact that they get stuck in my braces, which is super <laughs> awkward. I cannot eat them or anything green at work. Oh, gosh. I was actually driving home from work the other day and looked in my rearview mirror at my mouth. And I had a, like a big green piece of broccoli that no one had told me about. And I ate, I had probably eaten lunch three hours prior. You're so funny. You said that on the last podcast because I was just listening to it this morning. Did I? Yeah. Well, it, it, ha it has not ended. Or I mean, it happened it, again. <laughs> it happened again. I mean, you do yes. eat a lot of broccoli. I, I do. I mean, there are so many greens on our campus. I just, I, yes, broccoli, uh, spinach, whatever it is. Yes, it happened again. Well, <laughs> the story, I need to just go to the bathroom every time after I eat. I don't know why I don't. Sometimes I just don't have time. Anyway, I also have a slow cooker tater tot casserole recipe that I posted on our Facebook page that the kids both loved and it was just delicious and super easy. Yeah. All right, before we read our review, just a reminder to send us questions if you have them for our next episode. We'd love to get more questions. Now we're going to go ahead and read a review. Do you want to read this one or do you want me to? I would love to. And okay. I just have to say the reviews have been uh, like so nice. I don't they like, <clears throat> oh my gosh. Um, They have just been, I mean, heartwarming. So thank you. I'm, uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I like stalk our iTunes to look for reviews because it means so much. So keep them coming. Emma H wrote, I was turned on to this podcast by another favorite set of female podcasters. What a, and what a gem. Funny enough, I followed both Gina and Nicole's blogs and had no idea the duo had a podcast together. I quickly binged through all the episodes and love the mix of professional insight with mom chit chat. It's nice hearing that dietitians are real people and have a balanced approach for the whole family. It's awesome. Yeah, we are real people. We are. We eat real food. Yep. Right. Awesome. Good. Thank you, Emma. So coming up on March 1st, we will be dishing our fourth Q&A session. So send us your questions. They can be personal or health related. We are all ears. Until then, keep in touch with us on social media at Dietitians Dish Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. And check out all of our episodes and show notes on our website, dietitiansdishpodcast.com. Also, please tell your friends about us. They can find us on numerous outlets such as Overcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. If you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. We promise it only takes a few seconds. 
and you don't even have to write anything. Just fill out the stars. All right, until next time, everyone, and Nicole, be well. Well, we'll see you soon. Is that next week that we're going out to Great Wolf, or is that the week after? Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Awesome. Cameron's birthday, right after. Yeah. It's going to be three. Yes. No, before, actually. It's on the 20th. Yep. Yeah. Right after. Cool. Right after All that. Right. Yes. Take care, Dina. All right. All right. See ya. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.